Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Jeffrey Deskovic with us here today, who is an internationally recognized expert on wrongful convictions and the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which has freed 10 wrongfully convicted people and helped pass three laws. Jeff is also an advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, sits on the Global Advisory Council of Restorative Justice International, and is co-owner of the Recharge Beyond the Bars reentry game, which facilitates the formerly incarcerated reconnecting with their friends and family. Jeff does presentations across the country and, and internationally and also does motivational speaking. His motivation is that he spent 16 years in prison from age 17 to 32 for murder and rape prior to being exonerated by DNA. A documentary short about his advocacy and life post-exoneration called Conviction is currently available on Amazon Prime. Jeff, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure and you have such a, a powerful story. Uh, why don't we start with that? Let's, let's give a background context. How does one end up wrongfully convicted at 17 years old? I, 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 when I think back to where I was at 17, the things that I was most concerned about were if that girl liked me, where I was going to go to college, and you know, were people judging me because of the clothes? Were they wearing the right or the wrong clothes? I, and I thought that was such a, a challenging and difficult time. I can't even imagine being 17 years old and being faced with a wrongful conviction that led to 16 years in prison. Well, it, I was caused by a coerced false confession. If I was to back up half a step, I guess I'd say that, you know, in high school, I was kind of quiet to myself. I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. And so when the police spoke to uh, some of the students in the high school, some of them told the police that they might want to speak with me. So that was how I got on their radar. I had an emotional reaction to the victim, which was a classmate being uh, being murdered. And the police thought that that was suspicious. And they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator. So that's how I got on their radar. Um, my father was never involved in my life. Uh, and that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique, where the officers would pretend, one officer would pretend to be a friend. So I began to look up to him as like a father figure. Uh, prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a police officer when I grew up. So, wow. so uh, yeah, so that kind of intersected with it all because uh, prior to the false confession, the six weeks run up to everything was that when they, they would initially talk to me as a suspect and when they would push too hard and, and, and I would become frightened and want to get away from them, uh, Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was what they developed. And so because I wanted to be a cop when I grew up, that was how that they wrote me into that. Uh, ultimately, they got me to agree to take a polygraph test. They said that some new information had come in the file and they wanted to share that with me and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. Uh, so I agreed to take the test. Uh, next day, I went to the police station for the test rather than going to school. They drove me from uh, they drove me from the city of Peekskill in New York to town of Brewster in Putnam County. Um, I didn't have an attorney present. I wasn't given anything to eat the entire, entire time I was there. And it also meant that I couldn't leave on my own because I had no idea of where I was. So I was completely dependent upon the police. Wow. Now, I, Jeff, I, 
I, you, you'll know much more about this than me. And if I'm not mistaken, please correct me. There was a one particular, or maybe there's multiple particular ones, the schools that were psychologically based that were forming much of the police interrogation techniques through the 80s and 90s. And I want to say it was John Reed or something like that. Yeah, the and Reed that, technique. Yes, John yeah. Reed. Mm -hmm. And that actually got disbanded by many of the law enforcement agencies in the last, gosh, I want to say in the last, sometime in the last 10 years, because they had found that it was, it was proving to provide too many false confessions. Well, the Reed technique is definitely, uh, is, de is definitely coercive. I mean, it was the uh, leading interrogation method that was taught throughout the U.S. Um, I was not aware that they are not using it anymore. I mean, I'm happy to hear that because it is, it is coercive. And it's a, it's a series of psychological principles and steps that are ultimately designed to coerce people into, uh, into false confessions. And speaking of which, I uh, wanted to share that uh, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Wow. And yeah, so it's a lot more frequent than most of us realize, and that particularly vulnerable populations would be youth and people with mental health issues. Gosh, and that's so shocking too, that it's that big. I had no idea it was that dramatic, 25%. Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're, you take the polygraph, I'm assuming then because of everything that led up to it, you didn't pass the polygraph. And so they say, you're under arrest and you're going to jail for an indefinite amount of time. The short answer is yes, but putting a little bit of color to that. Uh, so I was not given anything to eat the entire time I was there. I had no attorney present. Uh, they gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but I didn't quite understand that But because I had a lot of big words in it. But I figured, well, I'm there to help the police anyway, so what does it matter? Uh, let's, just, uh, let's just get on with it. Uh, from there, and by the way, the polygraphist himself was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who was dressed as a civilian. He never identified himself as, as a police officer. So I never, I never was read my rights by him. Wow. And so he, from, from, uh, from there, they put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He uh, invaded my personal space. He kept uh, asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just wanted, want you to verbally confirm it. <clears throat> and that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were gonna harm me, but that he'd been holding them off or could not do so any longer that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they wanna hear. You go home, you're not gonna be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long-term, just being concerned with my safety in the moment. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. You know, there was a possibility of harm. There was this false life preserver he threw me. And so the end result of it is I made up, I decided to make up a story based on the information which they gave me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously I was arrested. I was charged, that's how I was charged with murder and rape. Wow. 
And so you make this confession. Is there is there a trial? Is there a judge just giving there's a trial? Sentence? Well, there's a trial. There's a trial. So first, before the trial, the DNA test result comes in and it shows that semen on the victim didn't match me. So, oh, the so process, they already had DNA. That was wow. Yes, they did. Wow. So the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud and claim that he forgot to document. He said he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened up the door for the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't come from me, that she might have been murdered and raped close uh, close enough, that I might have murdered and raped her close enough to her having uh, consensual sex with somebody, that there was yet another person she slept with. So in order to wrongfully convict me, they were willing to trash her reputation. Wow. Uh, taking it a step further, he named another youth by name that he claimed had uh, slept with the victim, but he never called this other person as a witness. He never had a DNA test performed to prove that. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. At the same time, the public defender I had did not defend me, essentially. He never called my alibi as a witness. He never explained the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced or false. He literally did not try to discredit this medical examiner. He should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying it's not with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender's office and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. And so that conflict prevented the defense from calling him as an expert It prevented the defense from asking him for a DNA sample. The, go ahead, do you wanna say something about those things? Yeah, I just, I'm curious, during this whole thing, I mean, this is just, this sounds literally like one of those, uh, you know, late night movies where you just see so much coercion and corruptness going on with it. And I'm wondering through this process, is there any point where you're, you're trying to recant to your attorney or you're telling your family, this wasn't true, I didn't really do it. Or were you still almost, or were you still in that kind of fearful place of the police officers and everything and sticking with that story that they, they helped create for you? Well, I recanted right, right, right away when I was brought to the county jail and, you know, one of the officers there, you know, asked the cop who had brought me to the jail. I mean, what's he there for? You know, and they read the charges and I told them that I was innocent. And I tried to explain to my attorney that I was innocent. I mean, he rarely met with me, but when he would, I would try to explain that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. But he was always shutting me up. He told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Uh, I, I told my family that I was uh, that I was innocent. But the other thing about the trial that I want to mention was, you know, my attorney never really, he was kind of all over the place in terms of addressing the confession. So. You know, sometimes he argued that the confession never happened. Other times he argued it happened, but it, but that it, uh, it was coerced. That other times he argued that it happened, but it was false. So, you know, he had to have come across as somebody who was just like throwing things against, throwing mud against the wall, hoping that something stuck. Uh, by you know, when you defend a case when there's a confession, you're supposed to answer that confession. You have to, you have to try to disprove that confession. You have to explain it and bring it together in your closing argument or your client runs a pretty good risk of being convicted. I mean, a confession is powerful evidence that juries rely on, but he didn't do any of that, you know, and he would not allow me to testify either. 
Uh, you know, the, the interrogation was not videotaped. There was not audio tape. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. So they left the threat and false promise out of their story when they came to court. And added all up, I was wrongfully convicted and given a 15 to life sentence, despite the judge telling me, maybe you are innocent. Wow. And I just, I want to throw this in there for everybody watching and listening. I, I think sometimes we can, we hear stories like this and we think, well, if that was me in that situation, I would never do that. And I would submit to you two considerations. Stanley Milgram did a series of experiments back in the 50s or the 60s where he, pro he proved that the majority of the population, 60, 90% of the population would be willing to administer a, what they believed to be a fatal dose of electricity to someone who they did not know under the right size, types of social stresses and pressures. And these were all people who beforehand would probably never admit that they'd be willing to murder someone. The other one I would invite you to consider is there was a study that was done, I'm forgetting the institution now, but several years ago, and it's basically a, a 30 question or so study that promises that you will fall in love in less than three to five minutes. And it's a series of questions that you ask your uh, complete stranger and you do it in a space of looking into one another's eyes and it has proven time and time again to elicit feelings of love and deep connection with total strangers. And so I say that because if we can look at these extremes of humanity, fall in love in less than a few minutes with someone we don't know, or we can take ourselves to the point where we'd be willingly administering a fatal dose of electricity to a complete stranger, it's, it seems plausible then for all of us that under the right conditions, like Jeff just laid out, we too could find ourselves in a situation where we're unprepared and this deck was stacked against us to maybe admit something that we haven't. You know, how many of us have, have created have created stories that we thought we needed to tell to the people in our lives because we were trying to gain acceptance, friendship, satisfaction. We were trying to gain in the favorable pleasure. And so you have a dynamic like Jeff had where there's a police officer and he wanted to be a police officer at the time who was pretending to be his friend. And I think these are just important points to highlight because I want to invite you all to not only hear and watch Jeff's story, but to imagine how something similar could potentially happen to you. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, false confessions are a lot, you know, more common than what people realize. And in terms of frequency of wrongful convictions, just wanted to share that the National Registry of Exonerations, you know, catalogs 2,805 uh, exonerations from 1989 forward. There is a Wayne State University study that estimates that 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each uh, each year. So unfortunately, wrongful conviction is a lot more common than what people realize. And that's just, and it's so astounding too that we're still at a 10,000 number with all the technology, all that we know, and we're still getting it wrong that many times. Well, the systemic deficiencies that have led to wrongful convictions in the past, the pre-DNA era, uh, are still, those deficiencies still exist. They've largely been unaddressed by legislation. And, you know, you really, it needs to be done on state-by-state -state basis and then also um, nationally just to apply to federal cases. But the other thing to share is that DNA is only available in five to 12% of all serious felony cases. So even in a best case scenario, 88% of the time, DNA is not a, it's not, it's not, it's not an option in terms of determining guilt innocence. Is that just because of lack of available evidence? Because yes. I, okay. As an ignorant member of the public and having, you know, little, little limited concept of inner workings, what you see on TV seems like DNA is used in every single case. 
Yeah, that's definitely fiction. It's not. It's simply not. It's simply not available in most uh, in most cases. And you know, and sadly, even in some of the DNA cases, uh, if the evidence hasn't been properly uh, preserved, if it's literally been you know thrown out, then uh, you know, then DNA would not again would be off the table. So you you you're. You're 16, 17 years old. You get 15 um, years. Yeah, I'm, I'm 16 when I'm arrested. Turn 17 by the time the trial starts, and I'm given a 15 life sentence. Yeah. Okay, 15, and 15, 15 life sentence, even though the judge says you may or may not have done it, you go to prison, and at what point, you know, what is it like in prison for you? Is it, at some point, I imagine that there's a psychology shift for you where you realize that you're going to have to kind of take charge of your, your situation. Right. There is that psychological change. And, you know, that's um, fairly early in, in, in the process. I mean, my public defender, basically, as I mentioned before, didn't defend me. So I no longer trusted an attorney to represent me by myself, uh, by, by himself. So I used to go to the law library to learn the law. And so I could stay on top of him and give suggestions. And I used to study, uh, collect articles about people who were exonerated you know, what route did they take, how, how, who helped them. And I also use that as inspiration to keep going. In terms of how prison was, uh, you know, I would, it took, it took a while for me to get used to just being in a cell. Uh, that was a difficult adjustment. Uh, prison was very violent there in El Elmira Correctional Facility where I spent uh, 13 and a half of the 16 years. There was three to four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was a lot of other violence. There was, uh, gang activity. So cumulatively, there was a general atmosphere of violence and adrenaline that permeated the air. Uh, there were several times in the course of my incarceration uh, that I was beat up, maybe like six or seven times. Uh, you know, there is a vigilante mentality towards people are convicted of sex offenses. So I always had that concern on the back of my head. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of uh, verbal abuse from the guards to the prisoners. They uh, <clears throat> had sanctions that they would impose if the prisoners were found guilty of breaking a prison rule and they kept you in the cell 23 hours a day out of the 24 they send you less food sometimes you'll be three or four days old they will put you in a small cage area with maybe a pull-up bar in it if you were lucky for the one hour a day court mandated recreation uh, you could take two showers one week and three the next rather than being able to shower as daily as the rest of the population you could not go to the store use the phone you are while you're on that status and so you know, if, as far as the prison was concerned, you know, if you were trying to defend yourself, you know, then that obviously meant that you were fighting. So it was not just the physical aspect of that, but also uh, those sanctions were imposed on me. Uh, the food was terrible. It was often burned, sometimes not fully cooked. Uh, medical care was, uh, was, was substandard uh, as, as well. So I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up. Uh, suicidal ideation. So the mental health aspect of it uh, was uh, was intense also. And in the course of my incarceration, I did lose seven appeals. So each time I lost an appeal, uh, you know, the crash back down to earth was kind of uh, loud and hard. How did you fight through those mental health challenges, Jeff? Because I feel like the, the mental health piece, especially is something that it's getting more and more light for so many of us in various facets of life. And I can imagine someone like you who came, who encountered and dealt with it from such an extreme life experience, you would have some really unique insight in some of the things that you did to help navigate through those challenges. 
definitely belief in God was one thing. And another thing was I, I didn't focus on the 15 to life sentence. I thought I was, I broke it into manageable chunks. So I thought I was just doing like a year or two to the next uh, court proceeding, what happened, which I was sure I was going to win because I was uh, innocent. Uh, a learning, learn, going to the law library did give a sense of comfort and empowerment. The articles on exoneration um, also were inspirational. Uh, beyond that, uh, there, I, I also, uh, I also, I also read books. I read, I read three or four nonfiction books from 1998 to 2006. So, you know, keeping my mind going, I didn't waste time with the programs there. I, I, I took, I took programs that had some kind of potential usage for the outside. Uh, I did engage in this elaborate delusion. So when I would play basketball or chess or ping pong, I would pretend like I was a professional player and that so was everybody else and the people on the sideline waiting for next, that was the audience. And, you know, one recreational area would be home. The other one would be uh, away, mm -hmm. but it was not really like kids fantasizing on a playground. This is that I needed to survive mentally. I needed to get out of the prison for a couple of hours. And that was my way of doing it. Uh, I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it was not listening to sports talk radio. This was a lifeline to the outside. Uh, in 1998, they allowed us to purchase televisions in, in, in the cells at Elmira. And while my TV stayed off, for the most part, because I was doing legal work and writing letters looking for help and reading nonfiction books, uh, I did watch certain programs uh, each week. And, and I again, I engaged in a delusion. I pretended like I was visiting with friends. I would collect uh, nature scene pictures and I would hang them up on the cell wall and I would travel there uh, uh, mentally as well. So that was another aspect. And then, you know, the use, usage of euphemism. So it wasn't the prison assignment in the morning and a prison assignment in the afternoon. I was, I was uh, going to school or I was going to work, you know, and it's not the prison warden, it's the superintendent. So all of those things were tactics that there was another wrongfully convicted pr uh, prisoner there named Frank Sterling. Uh, and uh, we kept each other going for 13 and a half years. So every six weeks we would get together, we would brainstorm about what was the next move to make. We would try to keep each other going morale wise. You know, that was a uh, way of surviving as well. And he was exonerated by DNA a couple of years after me uh, doing 18 years. So it wasn't simply that he claimed to be innocent, but that he actually was. And last thing I'll round out, and I'll, I know you want to say something, let me just finish one part of the answer. I did uh, one in contact from the outside. I did place an ad looking for a pen pal and uh, somebody did answer and that provided a, a lifeline to the outside. I mean, I was openly asking him, you know, this is a stranger now in California, actually in Sacramento. I put, put the ad in Sacramento D uh, looking mm -hmm. for a pen pal and the stranger answered me, uh, named Scott. And I was uh, literally asking him, you know, should I quit? Uh, should I just give up? You know, should I just, you know, commit suicide? I'm never going to get out of here. And he used to always encourage me. So all those things were how I navigated and survived. And maybe the other point to cap off, I'll say that I knew that nobody that I already knew was coming to my rescue. And so I was going to have to try to recruit somebody to help build the bridge between me and the, and the substantive legal and investigative help that I needed as I had read it happen in other cases cases. And so to do that, I was going to have to keep my mind together. So in a lot of ways, I really didn't have the luxury of uh, losing it mentally. Jeffrey, you are you familiar with Anthony Ray Hinton? 
I am. I've met Anthony Ray Hinton before, and uh, I, I'm even more familiar with uh, Brian Stevenson. I, I, I know Brian personally. I've, I've had the pleasure of watching him speak on three or four different occasions. And if him and I were in the same room right now, he would come up to me and shake my hand and we would chat because he knows who I am and we admire each other's uh, work tremendously. And, you know, Brian's kind of an angel as amongst men. Yeah, I, I've seen some of Brian's talks, and I, I found out about Brian through Anthony Ray Hinton. I read his book, The Sun Does, the Sun Does Shine. And the reason yes. I bring it up is because I remember in there, he was sharing something similar that you just shared about creating these this kind of reality inside of his mind. And he was saying that while he's in prison, he dated, I think, Mariah Carey and Jennifer Lopez or something like that. And, <laughs> and he would use right. some of the similar euphemisms as, as you were. And, it, and you know, hearing both you talk, it, it reminds me of the the Victor Frankl quote from Man's Search for Meaning that no matter what happens in life, and I'm paraphrasing it, but no matter what happens in life, no one can take away the freedom to choose one added, one's attitude and even again set of circumstances. And I think that's such a, it's such a powerful piece that you just shared. And I hope everybody really paid attention to that is that circumstances in life, whether they're as extreme as being wrongfully incarcerated or whatever it is you're going through, there's what happened and there's the, there's still this the story the reality the, the the experience that you can create inside of your mind and i love how you phrase that jeff too of i didn't necessarily have the luxury to you know i think a lot of times many of the things that we get hung up on in life we get hung up on them because our lives are so much more blessed than we realize or we're willing to acknowledge in any given moment and so we have as i was sharing in the beginning i had the luxury as a 16 year old kid to have my biggest concerns being what people were thinking about me or if I was wearing the right clothes or where I might go to school. And if I didn't get accepted, what would that mean? And make that feel like it was, it was the end of the world when it was so far away from it. So I just, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it, you, as you were sharing it, it reminded me back to reading the sun does shine and, and Anthony's sharing those similar words too. Yeah, I, uh, by the way, I wanted to mention that one of the nonfiction books that I read, and perhaps the one that had the greatest influence on me, uh, was Viktor Frankl's uh, book, Mankind's, uh, you know, Search for Meaning. And, you know, you're in that crucible of, of extreme adversity, it can either break you, or, you know, you can, you can rise a, a, above that and, you know, attain like a higher level of enlightenment and of inner peace. And uh, without a doubt, I, I, feel that way, you know, in, in, in my life now as we get to, you know, later stages, but in terms of how I am now. So you, you finally are able to get free from prison. And then once you're out, where does the, where does the change happen? Or is it already happening as you're getting freed? Because I know you're going to the law, you're educating yourself, you're reading articles, do you get out and you decide I need to become an attorney and I need to go and make sure this never happens again? So I remember, I can trace it back to uh, in what turned out to be two or three years, last years of my incarceration. I remember just wistfully sitting there holding on, literally holding on to the cell bars and just thinking, man, if I, just really being down in the dumps and just saying, man, you know, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to become an attorney. I'm going to help to free other people in this position. But it was just kind of wistful thinking. It seemed like so far removed from ever uh, actually happening. And when I was exonerated, which was through further DNA testing, which identified the actual perpetrator, uh, you know, the Innocence Project agreed to represent me. That was the key. Second key was a district attorney that had blocked further testing and who had fought seven appeals, left office. Her successor allowed me to have uh, 
allowed me to have the further testing. And then we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank uh, so that it matched him uh, and he confessed. And, you know, my charges were, my convictions overturned. Eventually they were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. He was arrested and convicted. Um, but when, uh, when I was released, uh, I gave an off the cuff two, two and a half hour presentation, everything I'd ever wanted to say in 16 years, but could not get anybody to hear me say. And I realized at that moment, and just what I thought I was finishing, by the way, that's when another topic came in my head and another one. Uh, so I realized, you know, I could be part of the innocence movement without necessarily being a lawyer. And so for the first five years, uh, I was an individual advocate. So I was speaking, I caught on as a weekly columnist, I was doing media interviews, I was regularly meeting with elected officials, asking them to do policy changes. And I was doing that in the middle of a really difficult transition back into society. So I was released without anything. It took five years before I was compensated. So as a result of that, yeah. Wow. So I lacked stability of housing initially. At one point, I was just a couple of weeks away from a homeless shelter. Uh, I also, uh, I had to overcome the psychological after effects of my experience. So post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, processing things at a slower speed, feeling of having been frozen in time. There was the, there was the stigma of having been incarcerated for 16 years. Yes, wrongfully, but still there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? Uh, I, uh, it was awkward experience when I would meet up with my members of my extended family because the overwhelming majority of them had not come to visit me while I was in prison. The ones that did, it was spaced out by, you know, two and three years at a time. Wow. So, I, you know, I had to overcome that. That was difficult. Uh, world was different. It looked different. Uh, just physically, you know, neighborhoods didn't look the same and pe different people lived there and culture was different and technology, GPS, cell phones, internet was all different. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in a parallel world that I didn't belong in. So it was a very difficult uh, first five years before I got compensation. I did do the advocacy work while during that time period. And I did get scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's. Uh, and because uh, I was 10 classes short of the bachelor's degree at the time, funding was cut. And I went on to get a master's degree and my thesis on wrongful conviction cause and reform. And I did start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice using a um, million and a half dollars from what I got as compensation after the five years. And we have been able to get 11 people home and pass three laws. And I did uh, become advisory board member of uh, It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of, and we passed another five laws. But at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to sit at the defense table. I wanted to be able to make some of the arguments and hence becoming uh, an attorney. Jeff, were you, have you ever been angry? Angry at the people who put you away? Angry at I can't believe this five years until you were able to be compensated. I mean, it just seems like the 16 year old kid, the system failed him over and over and over and over and over and over again for 16 years. And then when he finally gets out, it fails him for another five until it even gets you. So you're, you're 36, 37, 38 before you finally are able to really start to get your feet underneath you and get going again. I'm 37. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So I was angry for the first week. You know, and I, and then I realized, you know, look, this is destroying me, you know, 
Mm. Uh, I have to let this anger go. I want to enjoy my life and live as meaningful a life as I can. And I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. And if I was angry or bitter, I mean, I feel like I would really be the only loser in that scenario. I felt like I lost so much already as it was. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? You know, and the vehicle that allows me to accomplish that is I take that energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work. So I do make sense of what everything that happened to me, you know, by my mission in the world being just to free people who are in the same position I was in and do some work on the preventative side, struggle for broader justice reform. And I have some, it's healing. It makes my suffering count for something. It's cathartic. It's meaningful. It helps make the world a little bit better. And perhaps more importantly, or just as important is I, I have some inner peace about me as a result uh, of that. I was going to ask you if you, you had come up with a mission or reason why all this happened. So I appreciate you answering that. Sure. Jeff, we're, we're coming up on our time and I, I, I regret that we're even coming up on our time because I feel like we still have so many, we have so many roads that we could explore. Before mm -hmm. I ask my final questions, where are the best places people can find and connect with you online and learn more about your story? So definitely the website, www.descovic.org. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. I have, I, people can email me through the web form that's there. I am on Instagram. I have a public figure page on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn, and I am also on LinkedIn. I uh, do want to quickly mention that my uh, ultimate goal is to have a chapter of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice uh, in each state and ultimately in each country. I see this really as a worldwide problem um, rather than just a New York problem or even just a U.S. problem. Uh, but that'll be when we're able to get the public support to do that. We do have a crowdfunding page on the website called Patreon, which is for people that want to be recurring monthly donors. Imagine for a minute, Jesse, what if 25,000 people were willing to, you know, sacrifice $3 or $5 a month to help free wrongfully convicted people. That would allow us to free even more uh, people, work on more cases, pursue policy changes. And, you know, the more we get public support, the more we, you know, we eventually can get to the point where we can have that chapter in each state, in each any in each uh, each each country yeah and i'll just put on here too jeff i'm gonna i'm gonna happily go and pledge some support for that too and i encourage everybody watching and listening if you've been as moved by jeff's story as i have been uh, do the same again we we don't sometimes realize how blessed and fortunate we are to live the lives the way we have and to be able to be free from some of the hardships and trials and tribulations that someone like jeff has been through and to know that there's still that many people that we still have 25 percent uh, getting into false confessions that there's over 10,000 of them. I mean, it, it's just astounding. And I think about how many lives of, of our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our community members are being dramatically altered because, because this is still going on. I think it's something that we could all do to just making a more harmonious and supportive society of all. Absolutely. So if I was to share one piece of advice just for the audience Please. who may be listening. Uh, so my formula for overcoming uh, adversity is that uh, is set a goal, have a realistic plan. You should meeting. You should be able to look at it three or four different ways and say to yourself, "Yeah, I, I can see how this might work out." Uh, remember to be flexible. the 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 goal is the goal. The plan's not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens that moves you towards your goal, you know, be willing to consider that and walk through that door. 
there have the mindset. There's no reason, no excuses. So no reasons why you can't accomplish something. There might be reasons why it's more challenging, but this, you know, it's not necessarily impossible. So, and then don't be afraid of hard work. Don't quit, never give up. And when you can't go on any longer, just to remember that could be the key moment right there where you are on the verge of a breakthrough, but because you quit, it's not gonna happen. So even though you can't go on anymore, keep doing, do so anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And when you make it out, reach back and um, help people in a similar position, do some work that's preventative and you'll, you'll find your suffering on account for something. It definitely will be healing and cathartic and meaningful. And I know that that message is well beyond uh, wrongful incarceration or imprisonment. I know that you could apply say to homelessness or someone that's a domestic abuse survivor or debilitating illness or someone that's faced racism, discrimination, uh, sexual abuse survivor. You know, and I, I've attended as audience member and also watched from afar. I remember I was at a, an event once and this woman that had been sexually trafficked and she now had a nonprofit organization helping to raise money for people to free people similarly situated. I, I've seen people who've had family members that were homicide victims that now engage in uh, advocacy work. So this is just a few. I know people that used to be homeless that help work with the homeless population. So that message is definitely universal and can uh, be applied to any of those scenarios I mentioned and, and uh, many more. Everyone, boys, this one you're gonna wanna rewatch and re-listen. And if I can make a suggestion before you do that, rewind to the last two minutes and listen to Jeff's formula for overcoming adversity. Do exactly what he said, write it down step-by-step step and write down some piece of adversity that you're trying to face or overcome in your life. And then rewind to the beginning and listen closely to Jeff's story. Listen closely to the story of a 16-year-old who was manipulated into thinking that the people were his friends and they were going to help him, only to be deprived of food, hyped up on caffeine, deprived of sleep, removed from his home and place of safety, and coerced into confessing to something he didn't do. Listen to the wisdom from someone who spent over 15 years of their life in prison, fighting off abuse and getting beat up in a place where there was violence and stabbings, isolation, who, who set his mind to learning legal and kept facing defeat after defeat after defeat. There were seven, Jeff, right? Seven appeals? Yes. Yeah, seven mm -hmm. appeals lost, but he kept pers persevering forward. You know, if you think about that, how many times have we encountered adversity on a path to a goal that we have? And we hear no once and we say, ah, oh, you know, the heck with it. I shouldn't have even tried anyways. You know, imagine if it was your very life on the line and you kept getting told no, 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 over and over and over again. Would you quit or would you persevere? I think Jeff laid out a beautiful formula for that about how we can do that. And really just as you listen to Jeff's story, consider, consider in context of your life. And it's not about comparing one's life or one's life experience to the other. It's about inviting the possibility into yours of what could be possible. If, if a 16-year-old kid could rise above and overcome and, and release the anger from the time that was taken away from him and go on to not only do advocacy work, but to become an attorney on the front line, helping those avoid his fate to having, I think, 11, was it 11 so far? Yes, we've got 11 people home that were on for prisons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 11, 11 people we helped for free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Imagine what you can do. And that's not to say that what you're doing already isn't enough. It's just the invitation and the exploration of what could be else could be possibly on you right now in your life. I think that all of us who have watched and listened to this today, Jeff, have been inspired, have been moved. I know I certainly have. 
I am so grateful that you are here to share the story. And I'm so grateful that you are, you are leading a charge and on the front lines to leading it, leading into a world where these things do not happen anymore. And that other people are going to have the opportunity to, to break free from a prison that they shouldn't be in in the first place and go on and live a meaningful and impactful life. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And if you enjoyed the story, uh, you'd like to hear a little bit more, uh, definitely go to Amazon Prime and it's a documentary short called Conviction, which has a lot more about my uh, life post-exoneration and my uh, advocacy work. Okay, we'll make sure to include those links too. We will see you next time, everybody, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to